to Dayan against the grain, structural racism may be the dominant intellectual framework for understanding race and racism, but it's not the only one. I'm CS. Greta Snyder puts forward an alternative approach, one rooted in complex systems thinking that may encourage more action and activism to combat racism. Coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Structural racism is a concept, a framework that has long resonated with many on the left. If racism isn't just enacted by so-called bad apples, by individuals here and there who harbor racist beliefs, then to think in terms of structures and systems makes sense. But structural racism is not the only framework out there for understanding race. Another approach, one that Greta Snyder finds more promising, is what she calls the complex systems framework. Among other things, Snyder believes that the complex systems framework may be better in terms of actually motivating people to act against racism and white supremacy. That's because, she argues in an article in the journal New Political Science, a complex systems approach may not promote the same kind or level of pessimism about the possibility of change that structural racism does. Greta Snyder is visiting assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College. Her article in the September 2021 issue of New Political Science has the title, Absolving Responsibility and Dampening Activism? With a question mark. The Structural Racism Framework, Democratic Motivation, and the Complex Systems Alternative. When Greta and I connected recently, she began with these comments about the Structural Racism Framework. This is a challenge to define this in the piece. I I think it's hard to say that structural racism as a framework is definitively this or that. Uh, My understanding of the framework is really a function of a particular genealogy, uh, which has the framework developing through the combined work of activists, uh, in particular, Ture and Hamilton academics, so Eduardo Beniva Silva, John A. Powell, Moon Ki Jung, uh, and think tanks, so the Aspen Institute, the Poverty and Race Research Action Council. So the major features of this framework um, as developed by these kinds of figures for me include number one persistent racial hierarchy is a function of multiple interacting institutions these produce a macro structure of racial hierarchy um, which has meso and micro uh, effects creating interest for instance and shaping affect and perception Uh, Second, the components of the structure are adaptive. So changes in one area uh, can be and are negated by changes in another. Um, And third, the structure, um, that is racial hierarchy, persists even without individual racist attitudes and intentions, though it does produce those attitudes and intentions. Okay, so taking those in reverse order. So you're saying that adherence to the structural racism framework, to this way of looking at things, don't require that racism be kind of intentional for the racism to be to be there and to be pervasive. Yes, that's absolutely what I'm saying. So, you know, I think it's it's a framework that is developed in contradistinction to those who understand racism as a function of um, individual beliefs. Um, These these figures developing a structural racism framework want to say, no, there's something over and above individuals that's, yeah, shaping individual beliefs, but um, persist and produces racially disparate outcomes, whether or not individuals have those beliefs. And the notion that the forces sustaining the structure that is structural racism are adaptive. 
Uh, talk a little bit more about that and what it means for their understanding of how persistent uh, structural racism, racism in our society is. Yeah, so one example that I cite in the paper has to do with the challenge to anti-discrimination law that was leveled by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, among others. Um, so the develop of the framing of intersectionality to talk about ways in which anti-discrimination law failed to serve and in fact, I would say, pushed out certain kinds of subjects in terms of their ability to seek remedies through anti-discrimination law. So intersectionality points out the ways in which anti-discrimination law forces claimants to make a claim on the basis of either race or sex, <laughs> but sometimes it's the intersection of both that results in the discrimination against a, a specific group. So the experience of Black women may be different than, than white women who are not facing discrimination may be different than Black men um, who are not facing discrimination in a, in a given case. Anyway, Kimberly Crenshaw creates this framework to point out this problem, and the law has acknowledged that, in fact, it is a big problem that the law is constructed in ways such that it will not recognize the specific kinds of discrimination that, for instance, Black women face. So there are now grounds for making claims on the basis of intersectional discrimination, um, but you find that not many claimants are making claims on that basis because they're unlikely to win or because the court doesn't understand them. So I think this kind of speaks to, number one, anti-discrimination law was constructed to address these disparities, right? The experience of discrimination. Um, it failed, you know, it failed large classes of people. <laughs> and that was built into the law. Number two, there's a kind of remedy that's produced for this problem in the law. But that remedy fails to work in the context of the legal system. So I think that speaks to kind of adaptive racial inequity over time. It's inequity that's nimble um, and changes according to challenges to that inequity. And given that, given that uh, nimbleness, given the, the way racial hierarchy and the institutions that support it are adaptive, what, what is your sense of uh, the degree to which structural racism framework adherents believe that uh, the structure which is racial hierarchy, the structure can, can change, can be eliminated. Yeah, so I think there's a range of view in this camp, although my sense is that the belief that a society without racial hierarchy could exist is anathema for those who work with and within a structural racism framework. That such a belief is dismissed as um, naive and maybe even a dangerous perspective. In terms of variation in views within this camp, I would say most probably would hold to the view that through challenges, um, through activist challenges, the racial structure can become less hierarchical. Sure, we might not get to the promised land, um, but society can be improved. Um, but those are there are also people who are really staunchly pessimistic in this camp. Um, I think people who would argue that we can't say that real transformation in the racial structure has occurred. Um, that is, we can't say the world of the new Jim Crow, for instance, is qualitatively better than the world of the old Jim Crow. Um, so on this view, the, the prospects for even real change, much less a utopian transformation, are dim. And so you're right, Greta, that structural racism to many 
stresses the endurance of deep racial inequality and paints a totalizing portrait of, of white supremacy. Yeah, and this is, this is a, an idea that I got from figures like J.K. Gibson Graham, um, Imani Perry suggests the same thing. And I think that in part this is because of the affordances of the framework. Um, so the structural racism framework was developed right in a particular historical moment for a particular purpose. It was developed in, um, or at least the one I'm talking about, is developed in the post-civil rights moment um, to explain the stickiness of racial inequity, even despite the victories won by the civil rights movement. Um, so, you know, there's a turn to structure because structure stresses order and regularity and reproduction. I mean, think about the language itself, right? The word connotes solidity. Um, you can also think about the discourse around structure and structural oppression. So one of the metaphors that's often invoked to explain structural oppression is the birdcage metaphor, which is used to suggest that the interaction of different elements of racism ultimately produce a cohesive whole that's stronger than its parts, right? The bars itself don't seem to amount to much, but together in a cage, they're stronger and inescapable. So I think it's right to say that champions of the structural racism framework, at least many of them, maintain that, you know, activism can effectively combat racism. But I think it's also important to think that, or to take into account that at the same time as they say that racism is adaptive, and at the same time as um, ideas about there being a, a fundamental driver of racial oppression, whether that's economic or political or cultural, um, has been discredited. You know, intellectual developments outside of the structural racism framework suggest that there's no one thread, like the means of production, to pull that will result in racism's undoing. So, like, as I said before, also, um, structural racism attunes us to how we are deeply shaped by structures in ways that preempt revolutionary action the kind of action I think that seems to be essential if real change is going to occur. So this totalizing picture, in my view, comes from a combination, both of the nature of the framework itself, but also the other intellectual currents in which it's situated. It's so big, it's so multifaceted, it's so nimble, that it leaves one feeling minor reforms can't matter, and big revolutions are unlikely at best. Um, and this point about the inadequacy of minor reforms um, has been affirmed by people who who champion the structural racism framework um, and how they, they talk about its implications. So I'm thinking in particular of one line in an article by the person who was at that time the director of the Aspen Roundtable on Community Change. Uh, she She wrote, I think, in that that um, though the structural approach may seem too big, we ignore it at our peril and end up placing unrealistic expectations on narrow, programmatic, band-aid-like solutions. So, you know, minor solutions, the narrow, programmatic, band-aid-like solutions are, are inadequate, um, but also if racist structure structures us, then what possibility are there for big solutions? Greta Snyder is my guest. She's visiting assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College, and she contributed an article that proposes an alternative to the structural racism framework. That article was published in New Political Science, a journal of politics and culture. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. What do grassroots organizing groups or many of them, think about the structural racism framework and the advisability of promoting it or, or even referring to it? So 
I don't think I can give a great answer to that question. The task I set for myself in the article was to ask whether it's plausible to believe that the structural racism framework is democratically demotivating. And so, you know, this is this is an idea that I kind of got from a number of different sources I had been reading and you know, just in terms of like establishing its plausibility, I do a little bit in terms of garnering some suggestive evidence that grassroots groups may not turn to this language first or may find a structural racism framework to be problematic for their efforts. But I definitely wouldn't say I know how grassroots groups feel about this language. Mostly, yeah, I just want to say it's plausible to believe that this language, this framework may have demotivating effects. And what do you mean here by demotivating effects that structural racism plausibly demotivates democratic work. Are you talking about people being less inclined to do activism, for example? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I think that, you know, in my mind, it's the person who says, well, why even bother? This is going to be a drip in the bucket. It's going to be a drip in the bucket that is negated um, by some adaptation in some other part of the system. Um, also, what can one person do in the face of this huge machine? So I think, you know, there are kind of different elements that could possibly demotivate about the structural racism framework, but I'm interested in whether, you know, whether people get involved, whether people persist in their involvement, um, how people understand their possibility to be part of change. You do forward as evidence in this article um, two things that, that are suggestive about um, whether structural racism framework, whether using that framework, advocating that framework, demotivates democratic work. One is uh, what memoirs and manifestos written by leaders of racial justice movements and organizations have, have said or haven't said about structural racism. And the 2020 mobilizations for racial justice. Can you share what you what you share in this article? Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that most of my suggestive evidence about structural racism as a framework being democratically demotivating is about absence. Like you said, I I don't see sort of those who were in leadership positions or foregrounded within the context of recent mobilizations against inequity turning to that language, which I find really interesting. Um, I also looked at Google searches around the time of those mobilizations, and there wasn't really much uptake. Uh, people weren't searching for structural racism. So that gives us a sense of like what's going on in the in the public discourse, if if this is one way in which the problem is being talked about at a moment in which this problem is getting a lot of attention and seemed like seemed like it wasn't. Well, let's turn to we'll, we'll talk more about structural racism, but let's turn to what you are advancing as an alternative framework an alternative to the structural racism framework. And you call it uh, the complex systems framework. And let's start with the complex part of that. Um, you note that in the past few decades, philosophers and social scientists have paid increasing attention to a body of research known as complexity theory. Now, this is a very difficult thing to encapsulate, I'm sure, but what are the fundamentals of complexity theory? So I think complexity theory understands the world in terms of 
complex systems, sees sees the world as as populated um, predominantly, I'd say, by by complex systems, um, and by complex they mean a system of a very particular kind. So, I'll just put out some features for you. Okay, so it's a system that's defined by self-organization. Um, that means it kind of orders itself. Its parts take on an order without a central command. Um, it's defined by emergence, which means uh, there are properties that you see at the system level that come out of the interaction of the parts. So people who talk about emergence say the whole is different than the sum of its parts. These systems are open. So they are connected with other systems. They are situated in systems. They are comprised of systems. Uh, they are adaptive, meaning they are changing as their environment and their components change. Uh, they're far from equilibric, meaning they're always working to maintain stability um, and they're really unpredictable. Um, sometimes they act what complexity theorists uh, talk about as non-linearly. Um, so that means really um, small causes can have large effects. Uh, we see a, a disproportion between cause and effect. Uh, so those, those I think are the, the key characteristics of complexity theory, or at least the, the version of it that I ascribe to. Now, you said the systems are far from equilibric, but then I thought you said that they maintain um, a kind of sameness. Did I understand that right? So I, I think that they are always working to maintain stability. That is one of the things I really want to highlight about complex systems. Uh, they are often stable, but that stability has to be has to be produced because they're always facing changes in systems to which they are connected or systems in which they're embedded. So, you know, they're often thrown for a loop and have to work to produce stability. In the arena of race and racism, what would be some examples of systems in operation in society and politics? Yeah, so I talk about thinking through a complex systems framework to try to reconfigure our understanding of race as a system composed of systems sharing parts with other systems embedded in systems. And to think about racism, or as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it, um, and I, I think this is a really excellent definition, the state-sanctioned and or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death, um, to think about racism as an outcome of the interactions between all of these systems. Um, so let's take that kind of race as a system. Um, race is a system of relationships then uh, that's produced by laws or policies that are implicitly or explicitly about race. So we can think here of the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution. We can think of the Immigration Act. We can think of citizenship laws, uh, economic elements like wealth distribution or tax schemes or home ownership. And we can think about also cultural formations like representations, uh, stereotypes, scientific discourses, and historical narratives. Um, it's, I think, worth noting that one of the points of complex systems analysis is that systems share parts, systems are entwined. So it's really hard to draw definitive boundaries between systems, that is to say like, what's inside of them and what's outside. And it's impossible to say then whether something is really like about class, for instance, or about race, or that one aspect of this is really economic or really political. One of the reasons I really like this framework is because its conceptual resources enable us to acknowledge that these distinctions are analytical impositions rather than reflective of like clear cuts in the world. Um, and I should say that this work, uh, this, this way of thinking about race and racism 
is work that's inspired by feminist sociologist Sylvia Walby. Um, she's, I think, the first person that I've encountered to suggest that we turn to a complex systems framework to um, think about deep social inequality. Um, she does it to try to address uh, some of the deficiencies she saw in kind of previous forms of system theorizing. But I should also say that she herself and me by extension um, are deeply influenced by the theorization of oppression uh, by black feminist groups like the Third World Women's Alliance and the Kombahi River Collective. Um, those who painted oppression as a function of systems that are interactive and non-hierarchically organized, race, gender, class, and more. Um, one more shout out, I, I also owe a debt to Erica Cudworth and Stephen Hobden. They've got a great book called Post-Human International Relations where they interact with Sylvia Walby's theorization. Um, and I think they, they importantly build on her vision by bringing non-human systems into the picture. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Greta Snyder is my guest. She teaches at Williams College in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. And she contributed an essay to the journal New Political Science, the September 2021 issue. It's called absolving responsibility and dampening activism with a question mark, the structural racism framework, democratic motivation, and the complex systems alternative. So you're saying that there are these systems that might be called racial systems, but that they are constantly interconnecting, interacting with, and they are interconnected with systems of all types, systems that one might not consider or designate as, as racial systems. Is, is that right? And if so, how does that differ from the structural racism framework, the, the view held by those folks? I think that those who kind of work in and with the idea of structural racism um, certainly understands race as interconnected with other kinds of social systems, gender, class, etc. Um, and I think they would also say, right, this is a function of interactions between economics, politics, and culture, like all different kinds of institutions. I think one thing that the complex systems kind of take on things gives us, or one different way it focuses our attention is it also has us pay attention to the ways in which race is imbricated with um, various kinds of non-human systems. So uh, for instance, the climate, <laughs> uh, or it could be, you know, thinking about race, uh, a racial system in a more local area. You could think about the particular kinds of actual physical infrastructure uh, and the way that shapes kind of racial systems. Uh, it could be viruses. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I would say one of the major differences is that the complex systems framework uh, draws our attention to the way that non-human systems are at play and also mutually imbricated with our human systems. And what would the complex systems approach be to the issue of change and to whether systems do change. I'm asking you to, to repeat a little bit what you said earlier, whether systems can change and whether, you know, speaking on the subject of race, whether racism and racial hierarchy can change. Yeah, so I think I should start by noting that um, the emphasis in complex systems analysis is on explaining change in kind. So structure um, is focused on explaining stability, and complex systems analysis is focused on change. And it could be change that's reproductive, and by that I mean change that ultimately maintains the status quo 
or change that's transformative, which means to me a change that changes the nature of the system. Um, so the the kind of affordances of this particular framework focus our attention on change, unlike structural racism. Um, and that's because complex systems are dynamic. They're changing in response to changes in related systems. But I really want to highlight that complex systems thinkers point out that most often that change is reproductive. And this is because complex systems are um, not only adaptive, they're, they're path dependent. So transformative change in system kind becomes more difficult over time. The trajectories of complex systems most often stay stable, even if they have to work to maintain that stability. And that's a key thing to note about this framework, because I think any framework that's used to make sense of racial political outcomes can't underplay the depth and tenacity of racial inequality, nor can it underplay human responsibility for it. Racial inequality runs deep, it's persistent, and it's a function of complex social forces. And a complex systems framework, I think, doesn't underplay the difficulty of transformative change. Uh, it does, however, um, allow for the possibility of non what's called nonlinear change. I think I referred to this earlier when I was describing the characteristics of complex systems. So uh, on the structural racism framework, big inequity can only be meaningfully transformed by big action. Um, there's a proportionality there between effect and cause. But on a complex systems framework, small actions can sometimes, in the context of a larger confluence of different kinds of causal factors, have a disproportionate effect. Um, that includes setting off a process of um, self-reorganization, which has an unpredictable outcome, not just because it's a really complicated process that can't be understood by our limited human minds, but also because there is an element of real creativity in self-organization. And I think something that's really key to understand here is that um, from this perspective, the small parts of the causal configuration that produces system change, they they aren't less important than what we might call larger parts of a, a causal configuration, like economic shifts or climate change. And that's because it's the interaction of the small and the large that matters. You can't separate out the different factors and rank them in importance. The interaction produces the outcome, and all the elements are key to the interaction. So while an individual contribution may be a relatively small part of a causal configuration, it can be just as essential as a large part. Um, so knowing complex systems can act nonlinearly, there is a possibility for real change that we would call progress, even in more minor actions, including actions that I think happen in interconnected but geographically or conceptually far off systems. Um, so systems that don't seem to be related to race. But I think also it's important to say that the complex systems framework is agnostic about the possibility for revolutionary change in a way that the structural racism framework, um, at least to my mind, doesn't seem to be. So, you know, I've, I've talked about kind of reasons to believe that the structural racism framework inclines us to believe that racial equity can't be achieved. Um, the complex systems view doesn't suggest that anything is possible at any given moment. Possibilities are always bounded in a particular moment. But it also says that possibilities don't sit still. The kind of possibilities change over time according to change in the system. So I think, and I think others would say that the future is radically open on this vision. And so it doesn't promise 
racial progress. But, you know, it says we can't know what the future will hold. Um, we can't know that, for instance, you know, a society that's characterized by racial equality can't be achieved. And therefore, would you say, would you argue that it is less pessimistic, the CSF, this complex systems framework, is less pessimistic than the structural racism framework in terms of the potential of things to change, maybe even a dr in a dramatic way on, in the arenas of race and racism? Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's a lot in the, there's a lot of hope in the we don't know. And even if it's a, yeah, it's the chance of something really substantially different, right, of a, of a world without racism, for instance, is small. But I think we don't know is, is something that you can say from a complex systems framework that's a lot harder to say from a structural racism framework. Talk more about the way in which small changes could be viewed to have, could be viewed as possibly having outsized effects if one adopts a complex systems approach. I think what this framework would have us believe is that we can't know that our actions will matter significantly, but we also can't know that they won't. And I think that this framework kind of enables us to appreciate the role of kind of contingent factors in major change. So I'm thinking here about Emmett Till's funeral and his mother's decision to have an open casket funeral. That was a really, really key moment in um, the civil rights movement mobilizations, which I think were a key transformative moment in kind of you know race in the United States. I I don't know if um, I think it's Mamie Till intended to have that effect with her decision, but it did. She couldn't have known it would have that effect, but it did. I think similarly. You can't know that you won't be the person in the photo at the protest that circulates around the world and changes, you know, changes the mind of a legislator, for instance, who changes a law with these unexpected consequences. That's the voice of Greta Fowler-Snyder, visiting assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Williams College, and we're talking about an article she wrote that proposes an alternative to the structural racism framework that is the, uh, she writes, the dominant intellectual framework used by the left in the U.S. for understanding race and racism. The alternative she's suggesting that is rooted in complexity theory is called the complex systems framework. And I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. When discussing the uh, political implications of the complex systems framework, you bring up your understanding of that framework as an ecological paradigm. Ecological in what sense? Yeah, so I'm really drawn to this language of ecology as an alternative for talking about race and racism. I think it, it works for me to point out the kinds of relationships that race as a system has with other kinds of systems, right? That it's open to other kinds of systems, that it may be vulnerable in those openings to other kinds of systems, that it is situated in systems, that it's deeply uh, imbricated in other systems, that it's made of systems. Um, so for me, I, I kind of turn to the language of ecology because it, I think, helps to give shape to understanding the kinds of relationships that race has with a variety of different kinds of systems and non-human systems included, right? So 
ecology is something that brings to mind that we are are situated in a world that is like partly not of our making and i think it's important to to situate our understanding of race and racism in that world as well yeah your focus on non-human systems and non-human phenomena is interesting and maybe a little surprising do you feel like non-human uh, phenomena are kind of left out of a lot of discussions around uh, race and racism? And and can you talk a bit about, you know, some of the examples, a couple of the examples you give about the role that non-human phenomena can play in human affairs, such as, as cotton and, I guess, the bull weevil? Yeah, so I, I started writing this article in 2017, I think. And I would say that people are much more attentive to the way that various kinds of social systems are affected by non-human systems. Uh, we have, we are two years into a pandemic now, and I think no one would deny that SARS-CoV-2 has really change the world in so many ways. Um, I do think that, you know, the non-human plays a role in, you know, lots of stories about racism um, and, you know, is brought into the accounts of people who are working with a structural racism framework. But I think what's different about a complex systems framework is that it brings non-humans in in a way that kind of respects their agency, or if you want to kind of use some more academic jargony terms, actancy, um, their ability to right, subvert human intention, to change the course of human institutions. I think a, a complex systems framework brings non-humans in as actors in their own right and has us pay attention to how those actors in the context of a, a causal configuration that does involve humans and human-made things like institutions uh, can create unexpected outcomes. So yeah, I talk about cotton and cotton as a kind of agent that thrives in the context of the South and the combination of right uh, cotton and, and the innovation of the cotton gin, you know, really entrenching the institution of chattel slavery in the U.S. Um, when people who had, for instance, been part of the Three-Fifths Compromise had basically supported that compromise, or at least you know a number of the people basically supported that compromise because they believed that slavery was going to die a natural death. That didn't happen, <laughs> in part because I think of the agency of cotton in conjunction with the human actors uh, who found this to be a plant that could thrive in the conditions in the South along with this technological innovation. You've spoken about your understanding that the complex systems framework could be more democratically motivating than the structural racism framework. How much of one's inclination, one's readiness or desire to do, say, activism on behalf of racial justice depends on one's belief that one's actions could make a difference? Yeah, so I would say that there are lots of different reasons to act and people can and do act even when they believe their actions probably won't make much of a difference. Um, I think thinking that one's action could make a big difference, that we don't know that it won't, can be a powerful motivation to act. I also think that even the possibility 
even if it's the slimmest possibility of a world, for instance, with race, but without racism, even, even the possibility of that world may be a powerful motivator. And that's, that's a possibility that I think exists in a complex systems framework and can't exist in a structural racism framework. I think the other thing I'd like to say is that it attunes us to how, right, the accumulation of small actions may lead to big changes over time, right? And and that we might not see the fruits of the labor in in the immediate, and we might not even know that accumulation is happening. But complex systems framework points us to phenomenon like tipping points, right? Where all of a sudden, <laughs> That small thing, right, pushes pushes the system over the edge towards major change. And that's been happening for a long time. So I think the other thing you can't know is, you know, even this small action that didn't really seem to matter in the large scheme of things, maybe it does, <laughs> or maybe it will. It's just hard to tell in the moment. So you just said something about how, um, or suggested that under the structural racism approach, race cannot exist without racial hierarchy. Is that right? I think according to the ways in which the framework is sometimes constructed. So I think that's very much the case on Benia Silva's framework. So he, he suggests that to the extent that there is more hierarchy, things are more racialized. And to the extent that um, society is less hierarchical, it is less racialized, which suggests that a society without hierarchy is not racialized at all. Um, and, you know, I think this is also a, a position that's taken by Afro-pessimists who say, right, race is born in and out of the project of producing human hierarchies. It is, in fact, some say that which creates and separates the human from the non-human. So it's it's hard to imagine a world with race without hierarchy on that particular ontological vision. Well, Greta, you've you've mentioned Afro-pessimism and and we've had that viewpoint on this program. And I wonder how you feel about uh, advancing your argument about coming up with uh, something that might be considered more optimistic in viewpoint, uh, namely the the complex systems framework that that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, presenting a more optimistic picture of of the possibilities for change and the possibilities of a world uh, with race that is without racial hierarchy. Uh, how, how do you feel about uh, advancing that position, given uh, maybe the the prevalence of a, a certain kind of pessimism that racism and, and structural racism can never be eradicated or or is extremely unlikely to be eradicated. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that the complex systems framework is optimistic. Um, I would say that it's agnostic <laughs> and maybe that inclines one more towards optimism. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's a really important difference. Um, I think I want to separate this framework or, or suggest that this framework is separate from kind of progressive teleological frameworks for understanding race and racism. Um, again, it doesn't it doesn't promise progress, and in fact suggests reasons why right. Stability is maintained even if it involves work, but it also kind of leaves that opening for a radically different future. I'll just say that I struggled a lot with the ethics of kind of bringing this argument in this moment. That is a time when Afro-pessimists are insistent that we, we haven't acknowledged in all sorts of ways the depth and scope and scale of anti-Blackness. Um, and I thought a lot about this, especially given my own subject position. So 
I had the pleasure of seeing Jared Sexton give a talk at the Oakley Center at Williams College, and he talked about how we continually want to jump right to the positive moment in the dialectic and, and how he sees Afro-pessimism as a way of doing the necessary work of like staying with the negative and letting, you know, letting that in, right? The depth, the scope, the scale change us and how we see and understand various political interventions. So if that's the kind of ethical and political prescription for the moment, I was like, is this really problematic to even bring this to the conversation table now? And honestly, I, I worry about this. I, I am unsettled. What I ultimately ended up with um, is that like these ideas are out there. They're worth giving some shape to them. And they're worth giving shape to so we can have a productive conversation about its positives and negatives for radical projects, um, or maybe for different kinds of constituencies. Yeah, I I'm really <laughs> I really want to stress that like I don't want this to come off as like Pollyannish, like a just hope and it will happen, um, or like this is happening because you don't have a more hopeful picture. I don't think that's the case, right? This racial inequity is because of deep institutionalized social forces at every level in all parts of society. Greta Snyder, visiting assistant professor at Williams College in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. And you can find her article about structural racism and what she calls the complex systems alternative, the complex systems framework, in the September 2021 issue of the journal New Political Science. Uh, Greta, thanks for writing that article and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, CS. It was such a great opportunity to talk with you. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>